Your neighbor Jim figured out that with MetroPCS, he gets unlimited data, talk, and text for $30, period. Babe, that color looks awesome. Just like he figured out that shopping with his wife will buy him a night with his buddies. That's Guy's Night Out figured out. You too figure it out. Switch to MetroPCS on the fast 4G LTE T-Mobile network for only $30, period. MetroPCS, wireless, figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Plan includes first one gigabyte of data at up to 4G LTE speeds. See store or MetroPCS.com for details and terms and conditions and data management info. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining me again this morning on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today we've got three great guests lined up to knock the dew off the tee with me this morning. First up, I'll be talking to PGA Master Professional Paul Rudine. Paul is the uh, Director of Instruction at Oceanet Golf Club up on Cape Cod, which looks like an amazing golf course to me. Please check it out online by going to OceanEdge.com. I'm looking forward to talking with Paul here in just a few moments. A little later, I'll be joined by Chad Park. Chad is the Director of Golf at Eastlake Golf Club here in Atlanta. Eastlake is the site of the PGA Tour Championship and a course that is definitely on my bucket list. So uh, I look forward to talking with Chad about 20 minutes from now. Then I'll wrap up the show by talking with PGA Tour Pro Bob Estes. Bob is a four-time winner on tour. He has also uh, had a few top tens in the majors, uh, but he's also a Cowboys fan, and we're going to have to see what we can do about that when he joins about 40 minutes from now. But before we get started, we, uh, we like to uh, kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women serving our military and everyone listening in on the Armed Forces Radio Network. We also want to thank those of you who serve in every branch of public service. We truly appreciate the sacrifices you make to preserve our freedoms and our liberties. Our sincere thanks as well to Cos Crew, Stephen Lee, and all the folks at Armed Forces Radio. It's an honor for us to be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. You'll find a sports link on the very bottom right-hand side of the homepage or the radio link in the upper right-hand corner. Click on that, you'll find our show. Uh, please also give those guys a follow on Twitter at the AFRN for the Armed Forces Radio Network. All right, and like I say, joining me first up this morning is Paul Rudine. Paul is the PGA Director of Instruction at Ocean Edge Resort and Golf Club up in Yarmouth, Massachusetts. He's a PGA Master Professional. He was inducted into the William Peterson University Athletic Hall of Fame in 1987, was named the PGA Teacher of the Year for, Cape, for the Cape Cod Chapter in 2008. One of his students is near and dear to my heart, near to dear Red Sox Nation's hearts, is, uh, and also people that view uh, the MLB channel. Heidi Watney uh, is one of his students, and I'm excited that uh, Paul is uh, next on the tee with me this morning. Hi, Paul. How are things up in God's country? Chris, we're having a beautiful day today. It's a Chamber of Commerce day today. Nothing but green grass and blue skies. <laughs> Good for you, my friend. So, Paul, I'm jealous on so many levels, but let me start by saying Ocean Edge is a beautiful golf course up there on Cape Cod. It's a, a Jack Nicholas redesign, right? Yeah, opened in uh, 2007? Yes, it is. It was originally opened in 1986. Uh, and then the Nicholas Design team came in and just gutted it and rebuilt it, and it's sensational. <laughs> it's uh, 
It sits on 433 acres right on Cape Cod Bay, and it's a four-diamond resort, just beautiful. Can you, uh, just for our listeners' sake who uh, you know, are going to kind of live vicariously through you, can you give our listeners an idea of an overview of the course and what it looks like? Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's a, it's a second-shot golf course. The, the driving areas are fairly generous. Uh, from the back tees, it stretches out to about 7,000 yards. Uh, it's, it's extremely tough because the wind blows on the Cape so often. No doubt. Uh, the green, yeah, the greens are typical necklace, lots of movement, lots of roll, uh, lots of undulation. Uh, the pin placements uh, are, are just, there's such a, there's a plethora of great pin placements uh, on each green, and it's so much fun. There's different tee blocks. Uh, any level of player can have a great time at Ocean Edge, and uh, it's always in impeccable shape. You know, you know, Paul, Jack Nicholas is a, a big hero of mine. Did you get the opportunity to talk with him while the course was being redesigned? No, I, I didn't. Uh, he, had his, uh, he had his top guy up here uh, doing most of the work. Uh, I have met him in the past, though. He was a hero of mine, too. Uh, it's probably because I, he's probably the reason I have a flying right elbow right now. But uh, he, he was... <laughs> is uh, that right? <laughs> yeah, he was... You know, you know uh, people think that golf uh, started in 1996 with Tiger Woods, but, you know, they're quick to forget how great, <laughs> you know. I mean, the bear was just the man. I used to go to Westchester every year and watch him as a kid, and uh, just awe-inspiring, the shots he would pull off and the power, the sheer power he had. He just was that right. much better than his contemporaries. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Now, now, Paul, your website, paulredeen.com, great site. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, but you've got lessons on there with Heidi Watney. How did, how did the two of you get hooked up? Well, uh, you know, Heidi is, she is, like you said in the, in the, uh, the pre uh, thing, that uh, she's the right. darling of Red Sox Nation. I mean, Heidi is, right. uh, she's terrific. She's Nick Watney's cousin. They grew up very close in Fresno. Right. They're about the same age. And Heidi was the Red Sox girl. She was the Red Sox reporter. And I just thought she right. was a natural to, uh, you know, get started, get, get my website up and running uh, because of the, uh, she's such a draw. And so I went after Heidi and got her and uh, had her come down to Florida, and we shot 12 really cool uh, shows on the fundamentals of golf. She is fantastic. She's as nice or nicer in person than you, than you see her on the screen. She's just terrific and uh, great work ethic. Pleasure to be around. Yeah. Good. Um, when you describe your style of instruction, uh, you say that the swing is only part of golf. Course management, the psychology behind peak performance is also a big factor. Talk about that. It is. And that's why my website is, is comprehensive. Um, yeah, I mean, the golf swing is the golf swing. That's, that's a part of golf. But how we think is such a huge part of golf. Uh, you know, I, I, that's why I have Dr. Joseph Parent, um, the mega-selling uh, author of Zen Golf. He's my mental coach on my website. And, uh, you know, he, he, he gets into detail about, you know, the correct way to think when you're out there. Uh, like I say, we can beat our brains in on the driving range, but, boy, the longest walk in the world is from the practice tee to the first tee. And if we don't know how <laughs> to bring it, yep. you know, if we, if we can't bring it mentally, then, then we're in trouble. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big – the mental part is a huge, huge part of the game. Yeah, so, also, you know – go ahead. Yeah, but also, I mean, it, the, the physical part of it. 
I mean, it's, uh, you know, my style of teaching is more or less, I'm not a methodologist. I don't tell people swing this way. I don't believe that the golf swing's a blueprint. Everybody comes to you, they're, they're all different, you know, the, the old snowflake thing. I mean, uh, different shapes and sizes and sh- levels of uh, strength and athleticism and all kinds of variables. So to try to squeeze them all into the same uh, mold is just uh, not realistic as far as I'm concerned. So I, I believe in cause and effect, and that's how I teach. I, you come to me with a, a swing issue, we'll find the root cause. Mm. So take a step back a second, Paul, when you talk about yeah. the mental side of the game, and you're, you're so right when, uh, you know, being the yeah, – things look great on the practice tee. Boy, you can – you know, a lot of times, you know, you can hit the ball so sweet, and then something happens – between the time you pick up, you know, your bag and walk to the first tee, and then you take that first swing. Why is that? Well, I think we get into a comfort zone, a false sense of comfort on the practice tee. First of all, you've got sterile conditions. You've got flat lies. You've got perfect lies. Every ball you hit, there are no consequences. You hit a bad one, you just yeah. pull another one over and uh, rake and fire. And you can lull yourself into this false sense of security. And you get on that first tee, and all of a sudden, every shot you hit means something. And I think that's why, and on my site, I talk about uh, pre-shot routine. And I think that's one of the ways to combat this, uh, this deer in the headlights when you get on the golf course, is to have a routine that you stick to. In fact, it's not enough to have a routine you have to time it and that's what i talk about on the site is get a friend to get a stopwatch and time your routine i heard kenny perry talking one time they said kenny tell us about your pre-shot routine he said well first of all it's 14 seconds long from the time i pulled the club 14 seconds so i mean that's getting it down to an exact science so every time he hits a shot whether it's a a tough little wedge over a pond, or it's just a, a blow it out drive down a huge fairway uh his approach is the same so he, he doesn't have that freeze-up uh, when he gets over a tough shot because his routine is the same. Man, no, that's, that's a great point. One, one of the things that I love so much about your bio on the site, to me it reads like it should be a movie, Paul, sort of the golf version of the Sandlot. You, you talk about how you and your friends, you know, are caddying during the day, then you, you play nine holes until it's dark, diving into ponds to retrieve your golf balls. It's fantastic. Talk about that. It, it was so much fun. I mean, I, that's why. I mean, that, that's why I love golf so much. When I was a kid, we literally—I had my grandfather's old Croydon golf clubs. For some of the old timers out there, you got to be real old timer to remember these uh, with the old <laughs> fiberglass shafts. And and we'd go out there in our in our squishy sneakers and in the rain and play or take the shoes off, play barefoot, and uh, have great matches with each other. We would. Uh, uh, like I say, dive right into the ponds. If we'd hit a ball in there that we didn't want to lose, uh, we'd go right in and try to find it. And we'd come up with ten others, um, and yeah. we had such a good time. Yeah, it was just it was just great. It was bliss, you know. And then, and no then doubt. Just kind of you, you know. And then you kind of uh, you, you evolve your your game. You get a little better. Like you know, I started to get better, and then you take it a little more seriously, and then you start to compete, and and it just goes from one level to the next. But that initial level is so important. That's why it's so important to get kids uh, loving the game uh, at an early age. Get them on the golf course. Don't just have them pound golf balls. Get them on the golf course. If I, all I did was take ground ball practice and batting practice as a little kid and never played games, I wouldn't have much love for baseball now. 
Um, so right. the same thing is true for golf. You know, get out there and, and, and play the game and have fun with it. Yeah, there you go. You also talked about it at one point after you graduated college and you had turned pro. The joy factor of the game slipped away. Why? It slipped away because, boy, everything was geared towards I want to play golf. I want to play golf for a living, and I wanted to, uh, yeah, I wanted to be a big shot, and I and I and I wanted to be a great player, and I saw that, you know, there's a fine line, and you can touch that line, but unless you cross over it, you know, it's just not going to happen. And I gave myself a good chance. I played uh, the the uh, Space Coast Tour in Florida, which at the time, going back to uh, late 70s, early 80s, that was the tour other than the pga tour in america that was right. you know that was the one to play and i it just it wasn't gonna happen for me so i i then kind of reevaluated and thought you know what teaching golf can be a kick too because i always have been a, a bit of a uh, pedantic guy when it comes to golf i always was trying to help people with their swings and i always got a kick out of it and then i, I threw all of my uh time and energy into teaching golf and uh and then that has just gotten better and better. It's it's almost like, you know, you develop as a player. Well, I started to develop as a teacher, and I started to get better, and I started to pick brains of the, the great teachers. And uh, boy, oh, boy, it's just it's, it's, it's really paid off in spades because it's what I love to do. And it's so good, Chris, to be able to actually help somebody, you know, and, and to show results. And I, I believe results can happen quickly. Um, I, I really believe that. I think people are, are capable of great things, things they don't believe they, they're capable of. And I see it every day in lessons. Yeah, so th- to that point, Paul, when, when you've got somebody that is, that's come to you for instruction and not, you know, I, whether they are, you know, a first-timer or somebody that's, you know, a mid-handicapper, and all, you know, you can see the results of, you know, you, you've changed their swing, you've helped them on the mental side, and now all of a sudden, you know, the person that was a 20-plus you know, is is a, is an under twenty, is a mid handicapper, and that mid handicapper now maybe is a is a single digit player. Is that is that something that you know makes what you do that you know enriching? Is that is that the thing? Is that the joy in golf now for you know someone you know like you? It is. That is the that's the whole thing in in, in a nutshell. That's what I uh, that's what I get off on now as far as golf goes. I love to see somebody improve and i like to see somebody um i love to see the spark in somebody yeah uh Yeah. you know let's face it uh, us golf instructors when they come to us they're down and they're not playing well they're not swinging well they're not having any fun and so to kind of reinstill that spark uh what a gift and uh you know i love that and i you know and I, i i do it i use video and i've got a video system chris that you I bring it right on the golf course, right on the uh, uh, practice tee. It's a big screen, and they can see immediately what they're, you know, where they are and what they need to do. And boy, when they see their swing, and then when I'll put them side by side, here's the beginning of the lesson, here's now. They can see it, and it just instills them with this sense of confidence. Yeah. Oh boy, you know, that's all I need. You know, it just, it's, it's just great. <laughs> yeah. So. Talk about that a little bit more. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your site now, and I've, I've been on it over the last few days. Talk about the video instruction and the quick tips piece that you offer. Yeah, yeah. well, the video instruction is people can upload their golf swings and uh, 
send it to me. You don't have to be a subscriber. A subscription to the site is $34.95 for the year. I have nine pages on the site. Um, but they don't have to be a subscriber. They, if they are a subscriber, they get a, a drastically reduced price on their online lessons. So they'll, set, they'll upload a, a video of their swing, and I'll turn around and do a voiceover and draw the lines and, uh, and, 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 and analyze their golf swing and maybe give them a drill or two to, to uh, go work on. Um, and then, uh, so that's that. And then the quick tips, these were a lot of fun to shoot. Uh, I, I, I have 40 of them on there. And uh, they're all a minute and a half to two minutes in length. And we did a lot of, you know, uh, cutaways to where I'm demonstrating. I even have one where I'm hitting a ball out of the water, which is kind of fun. And uh, by the way, when I st- it was down at, uh, at the, on the Wanamaker course at PGA Golf Club in Port St. Lucie. And there is a, an area where we went to shoot this. Chris, I, it, it could have been, it looked like snake-infested waters, but we had to get the shot. And boy, I went in there. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite, it was terrifying, but uh, I took the shot off, and, and uh, we uh, we got the shot anyway. So that was good. But yeah, they're they're quick tips, and you know I think when people, I think the best teachers are the ones that can take a paragraph and, and turn it into a sentence, because I think that's what resonates with students is. It doesn't have to be. Don't tell me how to make the watch. Just tell me what time it is, and. Uh, that's what the quick tips are all about. It's fundamentals. It's how to think. It it kind of takes the whole. It's the whole gamut of of golf in forty tips. And next year I'll have forty more tips. So uh, you know you'll have eighty tips when you sign up next year. All right. Talk a little bit about some of the success stories that you've had. Who have you who have you seen? And I'm obviously not looking for names of, of students, you know, yeah. in particular. But some things that you've seen in a transformation from somebody that you know you started out with and now where they're at. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've got a young. I had a young kid who uh, came to me, and uh, he was a. You could tell he had a little bit of a, a little bit of ability. Uh, that's the thing with kids. You don't know. You know, they, they develop at such different rates and their maturity and their size and everything else. But this kid had some ability, and I've been working with him for about five years, and uh, all of a sudden he's playing college golf. Uh, so, I mean, wow. that was a great, that was a great uh, thing for me. And then I, I had a guy who had his back fused. This probably is my best success He had been a golfer. He loved golf, and then he had this spinal thing and uh, he came to me and he said I'm either going to play golf after this lesson or I'm not going to play golf I this is kind of a a tipping point right now we're going to find out whether I can do this or not so the first thing I did was I grabbed him a set of Callaway Solaires which are the lightest women's clubs made and I had him hit some shots just nice and easy off a tee and he started to have fun and I told him I said you know what Use a tee when you're on the golf course. It's not the U.S. Open out there for you. Enjoy the game. Go out there and hit some shots. And he is now an avid player, loves the game, has learned to deal with his uh, injury. And uh, I think that's the biggest uh, success story I've had, is to help that guy uh, uh, kind of reinvent himself and really uh, redevelop that love for the game of golf. He had lost it completely. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point, Paul. I mean, 
Jack Nicholas now is, you know, talks, you know, he's got his new brand of golf balls out, but it's sort of, you know, the movement is play your tee, right? Based on your ability, play your tee because, you know, I think so long in the history of golf, we've gotten, you know, everything is so rules. I mean, there's a zillion rules out there for what you got to do and penalties and all that sort of, you know, it was more of a regimented game. And I, I think there's a, you know, a, a shift now to let's make the game fun. You know, it, it, it yeah. doesn't have to be so, so rigid. Go out exactly. there, find the tee that, that you like. Go, go you know, if, if you want to play the red tees, God bless you, go play the red tees, shoot 65. How much fun <laughs> is that, right? Why do you, if you got a hack at a round out there and shoot 120, eventually you may decide that this isn't for you. I'm giving this game up. Go play the tee right. that's right for you. You know, Chris, you're exactly right. I mean, most people, they work, they, it's high-stress life, high-stress job. Why do you right. do that when you get to the golf course? Go out and have fun, like right. you say, and play it forward. That's the program. It's play it forward. Get up yeah. on those up teeth and get out there with your buddies. If You, you know, I'm at an age now, I'm past 50, and, I, you know, I don't play the, the tips anymore. Occasionally I'll go back with the young guys, but not very often. And I've moved it up, and it's so much more fun. I mean, well, you know, you can't right. fight uh, time. And, uh you know, there are some things you can do as an older player to, to get a little more length, but uh, you know it, it's just it, it's just so much more enjoyable to play the game uh, from the from the proper tees. Absolutely right, Paul. How can tell our listeners how they can follow you? Whether it's on social media, we've talked to, you know about your site, paulrudine.com, But how else can our listeners follow you and uh, and uh, you know whether it's maybe get in touch with you or be able to you know learn more about you and uh, your golf instruction? Yes, well, they can get in touch with me at paul at paulrudine.com. And that's Rudine, R-U-D-E-E-N. Uh, and then my website is paulrudine.com. Right. And it's got the groovy little logo with a uh, white hat, white golf cap with some uh, groovy black shades on the <laughs> that's, that's my logo. So cause that's what I always wear. I always wear a, a golf cap with it with my shades on top. Um, but that's how they get in touch with me: paulredine.com or uh, paul at paulredine.com. That's awesome, Paul. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's been a pleasure talking well, to you. I've added Ocean Edge to the list of courses that I want to play one day. That's certainly on the bucket list now because that place looks fantastic. Uh, and I hope you'll come yeah. back again sometime. I'd love to catch up. Definitely, Chris. It's been my pleasure to, and also to reach out to all those brave uh, young men and women out there giving it up for, uh, for guys like me that can talk about golf. It's, uh, it's remarkable what they do, and it's been my pleasure. Fantastic. Paul, thank you so much. All the best to you and your family, and uh, hopefully we get the opportunity to talk again real soon. Fantastic stuff from Paul Rudine. Again, paulrudine.com. And, that, and uh, again, his last name is spelled R-U-D-E-E-N, paulrudine.com. I've got my next guest, Chad Parker, hanging on the line. We are going to get to him right after this real quick uh, station identification. This is Joe Longinusa from Thursday Night Tailgate, and you're listening to On the Tee with Chris Mascaro on the Armed Forces Radio Network. Now joining me next on the tee is Chad Parker. Chad is the director of golf at Eastlake Golf Club here in Atlanta. Eastlake is the site of the PGA Tour Championship. Let me give you a little background on Chad. He's originally from Florence, Alabama. Graduated from Mississippi State with his degree in marketing and professional golf management in 1995. 
He started his golf career in 96 as an assistant golf pro at North River Yacht Club over in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. In 97, he became a head golf professional at East Lake. Last year, he got his PGA certification in general management, which places him in the top 3% of the membership in the PGA of America. And the Atlanta Business Chronicle named him one of the top 40 under 40 back in 2009. Chad, thanks for joining me next on the tee this morning. Thanks for having me, Chris. Okay, so, Chad, you're from Alabama, but you graduated from Mississippi State, and I read that you're a big Alabama football fan, so you've you got to help me here. Mississippi State alums, Bulldog Nation alums, got to understand what's going on. You're a Mississippi State alum, but an Alabama fan. That's brutal. Well, it's the I grew up in Alabama, as you mentioned earlier, and the – um, I went to school at Mississippi State uh, just simply for the degree that they offered. And so I was down there for four and a half years, and I, and I loved, loved being down there, and I loved you know, the football team and everything about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the Alabama Crimson Tide is something that was ingrained in me growing up, and um, it's not going to shake it after only four years. <laughs> right. So – Chad, at what at what age did golf become a passion for you? Probably twelve or thirteen, something like that. Um, you know, grew up at a club in in Florence, uh, Alabama, where they had a PGA professional on staff that was very uh, good with juniors and had a great junior program. Um, you know, and kind of around that age, uh, started to like it and, and play a lot. And uh, under his uh, you know leadership, basically. Uh, just got to be fairly good at golf and, you know, played high school golf and, and decided to make golf a career once I found out about the program they had at Mississippi State. Did uh, did you play in college? Did not play in college, no. I wasn't good enough to play at, uh, at Mississippi State. Um, probably could have played, you know, at a two-year school, but uh, the, the major that I wanted to do um, is a fairly regimented program with internships, et cetera, and it's hard to transfer into. And so it's kind of one of the things that yeah. you have to kind of start. And so I couldn't yeah. have the option of doing that. So I had to make the hard choice to go ahead and start and not try to play. Um, just wasn't good enough to play at you know, the SEC level uh, school. But, you know, it's uh, it turned out okay uh, for me. So I'm, I'm right. pleased with the decision. Yep. No, no doubt. Now, you started out as an assistant pro at the North River Yacht Club. How did you get from there to Eastlake? A friend of mine from school was here, um, and uh, my wife was being transferred to Atlanta, and I'd stayed in touch with him uh, after we graduated and, you know, just basically networked and uh, had a position open here at Eastlake, uh, and I knew that we were moving to Atlanta, so it just it kind of worked out that way, which is a, yeah. a, a great lesson to, you know, maintain contacts. You never know who's going to get the job you want. Exactly right. You never know who knows somebody else. I couldn't agree exactly. with that statement more. Mm-hmm. So we had we had Ralph Keppel, your uh, your superintendent there at East Lake, on with us a couple of weeks ago, and I said to Ralph that you guys, you know, are in charge of and are playing on some sacred land, at least from you know a, a golf historian standpoint. You know, next to Augusta National, you know, East Lake to me is the place you know us golfers in the Southeast all have on our bucket list. Now, not right. only is East Lake the site of the tour championship and a Donald Ross design, but this is the place Bobby Jones grew up. Do you ever sort of look out on the course and, you know, let the historic significance, if you will, come over you? Oh, every day, every day. Is that I mean, right? something I don't, 
uh, you know, it's a place that uh, something I don't take lightly, and you know, something that you have to remind yourself that the guys that are walking through the door it may be their first time here, and you see a lot of really wide-eyed folks, and yeah. um, you know, it's kind of neat to see grown men kind of get giddy about playing golf, um, and we see that a lot here. Yeah, I bet you do. Like I say, it's you know on my bucket list. I'm sure it's on you know just about every golfer, at least in the southeast bucket list. Do you ever have you know play, you know, you know members, players, what whatnot that have been there for years and years, sit down, tell stories about what it was like when Bobby Jones was there, or when Donald Ross was designing it, or you know people that have been around the golf course for a length of time, share stories that you know surprise you or educate you on. Wow, really, that went on here. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're becoming fewer and fewer um, as um, we all get a little uh, yeah. long in the tooth. Um, but, yeah, that, right. that kind of thing does happen. And, you know, we get people to call here all the time that have, you know, had uh, that, that attended a wedding here back in the 40s or 50s, and they just wanted to see what it looks like now. And, I mean, that, that kind of thing literally happens weekly. Um, you know, with Is that right? Been, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just, you know, and we're, we're actually um, – and not a lot of people know this, but we are open to the public um, the third Sunday of every month. You can go online and sign up um, to do a kind of a self-guided tour of the clubhouse um, to see really? all the artifacts and things like that. So it's a partnership that we have with the Atlanta History Center. Um, you know, we have a lot of really neat artifacts on, on loan and displayed from a lot of different places. And, you know, we just wanted to, to make it available for um, – you know, folks to see if they want. I mean, we have a few people that take advantage of it. Most people, if they come here, would rather be playing golf um, than, you know, kind of right. doing a museum tour, kind of, so to speak. But it is a way for, uh, for and we we try to encourage people that call to, to, to come during that time frame as it um, is easy for us to manage and, and things like that. But, yeah, it's, uh, you know, with a place that's been here for over 100 years now, um, there's a lot of memories that were made both on and off the golf course. No doubt. So where do, where do people go to sign up for that? It's on our website, eastlakegolfclub.com, okay. and I'd have to, to kind of dig into, I think there's a tab on there. I have to, um, under under the history, I think, that says you can sign up for Clubhouse Tour. So. Yeah, very nice. I'll have to pull it up right now so, and see if I can find it. <laughs> so while you do that, speaking speaking of the golf course itself, Chad, back in 2007, Zach Johnson went out there and set a course record, shot 60. Yeah, mm-hmm. did you have an opportunity to talk to Zach about that round? I did. Yeah, I did, and he was uh, he felt bad about it. Um, you know, because he <laughs> knew. Right? Why? Well, he, he he knew that the reason that he was able to shoot that was because the greens that year were in a sad state, just because we had bent grass greens and we had the hottest August. I think on record, um, and they were basically just soft. And the only defense that any modern golf course or any golf course has, period, to guys like Zach Johnson and then the folks that play here every year are firm greens. And if you can't get the greens firm, then they're going to shoot lights out. I don't care how long the course is. Um, And that's exactly what happened. I mean, you know, if you look at the history of we've had the Tour Championship 13 times, the winning score – for 12 of those 13 times has been between 6 and 11 under, or 6 and 12 under in that range. 2007, the winning score was 23 under. Um, So it just goes to show you how much easier the course played that week. And I know Zach personally um, through – just through a couple different things that I've been involved with, and he came in and he was like – he said, I'm sorry. He goes – 
He goes, it's not, I don't feel good about, you know, having a course record or shooting this kind of score. Of course, he was, you know, happy to take the place in the tournament and, and, and what that did for him. But he knew that, um, and all the players knew, that the golf course was pretty much defenseless and they could, you get a guy that putts well and, and hits it in the fairway, you know, you can shoot 60. So, you know, it's it's uh, he was very gracious about it. We actually gave him a hat. We embroidered sixty on the back of a hat and put it in his locker for him. And you know, we were we were excited that he did it. But um, it was just kind of a um, you know a, a strange situation with the way the greens were. We weren't able to to get them firm, um, and you can't challenge them without firm greens. Yeah. No. Agreed. How stressful is it for you the week? You know, as you're leading up to the tour championship, I'm sure it's tarried and you've got a thousand things you've got to you've got responsibilities for and take care of but what's that week like for you it's a fun week um you know i've been here for all of them so i don't really um you know it's not really that stressful uh to be quite honest i mean if you go through it the first time you don't don't know what to expect it's stressful and it can be if you get rain or something happens that's um uh, unplanned for and you have to kind of you know punt in the middle of the game so to speak um it's it's a little it can be stressful um in that circumstance but you know having it so many years and having the same staff here so many years it's like um you know we kind of know what to expect we know what to do the players have been here before they kind of know what to to do um and so it's it's a fun week um you know and it's a different week for us obviously but it's a it's a fun week it's not stressful for us yeah probably a few years ago yeah, but not for me. <laughs> I'm sure it is. <laughs> I, I'm trying to recall from my conversation with Ralph. I know one year, I don't know if it was 2000, it may have been 2007. I don't remember exactly what year it was off the top of my head. But but uh, one year, right right before the tournament, it seemed like days before the tournament, the whole course was underwater because the city of Atlanta got a, you know, a flash flood. And um, you guys did an outstanding job. Ralph and his team obviously did an outstanding mm-hmm. job of getting that water, but it was literally, I mean, the golf course was, they were rivers. Every, the, hole were, the holes were rivers. Talk about yeah. that, you know, what it was like for, for you guys to get the course in just a matter of a couple of days in playing shape. Well, we have a, 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 you know, as you mentioned, Ralph and his crew did a great job with that, but we, we have a drainage system in place that um, is works wonderfully. So, um, you know, we've had uh, t- those kinds of rains before, um, and the golf course drains very well, um, and so just the way it's situated on the property, uh, when it was built, there was no, you know, not a lot of manufactured hills or not a lot of earth was moved, and so everything is going to drain as Mother Nature intended it. So if you take that and then you add a sophisticated drainage system under that that helps facilitate it, it literally um, will drain great. Now, getting the equipment out and mowing and doing the things that you have to do to the golf course ready when it's a little damp is a challenge. And so that's where the last-minute part of it comes in. You just can't get out there yeah. and mow until it gets dry enough to support the weight of the tractors and you know all that kind of stuff. Right. So that's when it gets stressful, when you know uh-huh. you have to get it done by a certain time and it's too wet to get out there and there's, your hands are tied at that point. Yeah. Do you uh, do you ever get an opportunity to go out and play some practice rounds with the players in the in the uh, you know days and weeks leading up to the tournament? Um, no, we we haven't. Um, we have never had a player arrive early to play a practice round in 13 years. Not one time. Is that right? Never. Wow. Yep. They Why get do you there. Think that is? 
Well, because they play so much golf. I mean, it's 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 just. I mean, you know, I hate to say it this way, but we're another. It's just another week for those guys. They have a routine. Yeah. Um, you know, local knowledge of the course is something that they can, um, you know, get from their caddies. Now we've had caddies come out and walk early before to mark yardage books, the way that their players want done, things like that. But you know, in terms of the pros playing a practice round, we really don't see that. And in fact, even huh. tournament week itself, most of the guys don't play 18 holes. They'll play like they'll get here Monday night, they'll check in. They'll play nine holes on Tuesday in practice. They'll play nine holes on Wednesdays in practice, and then that's it. So it's a, you know, the, those days for a lot of guys, as much as they travel and play, are rest. You know, they'll go out and see the course. You know, you'll, the first thing that happens, the first group that goes through, they put tees down where they think the hole locations are going to be that week, and they just leave them. So every one of the guys comes through, and they put at all the different holes. They try different little shots, mainly chip shots and kind of, Shots that they may think they would have that you know may not be represented in the yardage book. They tr- they'll, they'll practice yeah. those kind of shots, but they're so good. It's it's not like you know you and I going to a course that and, and you saying okay, well you know it's just a different mindset for them. And so we've never had a single person call and say, hey, I think I'm going to be in the tour championship and it's April and I'm passing through. Can I come play a practice round? You know, hasn't happened. Huh? That surprises it to me. Mm-hmm. Do any of those guys? seek you out, whether, whether it's the players or the caddies like you mentioned, Chad, do those guys seek you out to pick your brain about the course before they go out and play or before they arrive? Mm, it, it, not really. No, I mean, the, the players are so reliant on the cad, on the, uh, their caddy that there's a relationship yeah. there. Um, you know, there may be a, a question here or there, but it's not, um, you know, it's not something that you would sit down and kind of go through hole by hole. I mean, again, the, the, the golf course is pretty straightforward. Um, it's, not, it's nothing tricky about it. Um, you have to hit it straight, and you can't miss the greens in certain places. And so that, those are the shots that they're concerned about. You know, if they miss, if they're out of position, um, you know, if they short side themselves, you know, what kind of shot is, am I, I going to have on one if I hit it in the left bunker and the flag's on the left? You know, they're going to have an extremely hard bunker shot. So they're, they almost never, you know, guys in the top 30 at that time of the year, you just don't yeah. see them make a lot of mistakes, um, and so it's uh, you know. But to answer your question, that's not something that uh, you know they they typically do. Mm-hmm. Last week, I uh, I talked with Steve Mona, who is the CEO of the World Golf Foundation, which runs the First Tee. And I read in your bio that you're involved with the First Tee of Eastlake. Talk about that organization and what you're doing with them. Well, the the first tee is is part the first tee of Eastlake is part of the Eastlake Foundation, um, and so the golf club, our Eastlake Golf Club, is a basically a conduit for money raised for the foundation. I mean, any profits that the club makes, including hosting the tournament, is diverted back into the work the foundation does. And so the first tee program is a is something that we're very proud of, and um, you know, so my involvement has been going over from time to time, helping with the, the kids. But there's a full-time staff of, of, of both paid folks and volunteers that manage that process because it is, um, you know, last year I think we had over 600 kids in the program. It is a massive um, undertaking. You need a lot of coordination. Yeah. My role has been kind of a, a, in a support, you know, come, help when you can, you know, be involved that way. Talk to the kids when they come over here and play, which we allow them to do from time to time some of the older kids especially. but um, So it's, it's mainly been, you know, to support what they're doing and to help 
kind of the people that really are running the program, which is Nari Williams and Jeff Donovan. Um, those two guys are really the, the ones behind that program that make it go. You and Stuart, Stinks, uh, Stuart Sink started a, uh, a charity golf event over in your hometown in Florence to raise some money for a nonprofit facility called uh, The Healing Place. Talk about mm-hmm. that and how you got Stuart Sink involved. Uh, well, Stuart and I grew up together, and he, he grew up in, in Florence as well, um, obviously. So um, after he'd been on tour for a number of years, he kind of had the, the itch to 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 kind of give back to something in our hometown. And um, at the time, my mom and sister had started this uh, organization called The Healing Place, and so it kind of the stars kind of aligned. And um, so we started a golf tournament, and we're like, well, we'll give whatever we make on this tournament to The Healing Place. And, you know, I'll, I'll invite in my buddies, you know. Well, like That's where I know Zach from. Zach Johnson's played in it four or five times. And, you know, all of Stewart's friends from tour, um, from the PGA Tour, will come in and play. And it's grown to be a, a hugely successful event for a small town in Alabama that makes a tremendous impact on the charity. Um, the one-day event, including the, you know, the party the night before, an auction, et cetera, will fund about 90 to 92% of their operating needs for the year. Wow. Uh, so it's a massive thing for them. And, um, you know, it's it's a day... Um, out of our lives to to travel over there and play and, and coordinate it and you know there's a lot of work involved behind the scenes of course but um, so it's a it's a massive thing and it's just one example of how the guys on the PGA Tour can use their influence um, and time to really make a tremendous difference and I think it's you know that story is being told you know a little better by the PGA Tour but I don't think people really understand you know, how much those guys do um, for others. And it's and it's not typical in, in the professional athletes that I've seen for folks to be that way, but golfers seem to be that way. Um, and people gravitate towards them. Right. They want to be around them. And, um, and it's just kind of a, a perfect uh, scenario to raise money. So we're very proud of that. And, um, and, you know, both to do something where we grew up, but also to, to, to make a tremendous impact to one group of folks that are doing some incredible, you know, some incredibly difficult work, to be honest. I mean, it's just, you know, when, when someone loses a, a sibling or a parent or something traumatic happens in your life, you'll get a lot of support early. But it's that, you know, three-month, six-month, one year from that, the time it happens that you may need, you know, some help. And um, and that's what the healing place does. It it's there um, as an ongoing support mechanism for folks that have, that have experienced you know a loss or, or a change you know a significant change and and they don't charge for the services. So it's a it's an incredible thing and um, you know very very proud to be associated with it. Absolutely, that sounds fantastic, Chad. For for our listeners that may want to get more information or be involved, how can they find out more information about the tournament itself and or the, the event itself and the Healing Place? Do you know? Um, the Healing Place, um, the tournament itself uh, has a website. It's healing. It's the Healing Place Charity Championship, um, and okay. the website that we have. Um, if you just do a, a Google search, the website will pop up. But it, the website we have is yeah. is actually. Um, powered through another um, uh, another service that, that we do. Um, okay. But And then the Healing Place website is thehealingplace.org, I believe. So it's a incredible place. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic stuff, Chad. One more before we let you go. We've got our next guest, Bob Estes, hanging on the line. But, Chad, I understand you're a barbecue master, and your team called the Q School took first place in the ribs division last year at the Atlanta Barbecue Festival, and you also make homemade dill, two of my favorite things. Tell yep. me about that, and more importantly, how, our, how I and our folks uh, listening <laughs> in might be able to, uh, to, to get a little of that. Well, the, the barbecue thing is is definitely a passion, and it's something actually that Stuart and I both are. are Stuart's on our team, uh, the Q School team, and he was there for the for the win last year for the for the ribs. And um, you know, it's something that we talk about a lot. Um, and, and in fact, Stuart and I talk more about barbecue than golf. Um, and so it's just <laughs> something that we kind of started doing a few years ago. And of course, like anything else, you know. You can't once you like it, you can't get enough of it, and so we we cook every right. possible chance we can. Um, one of my favorite things to do in barbecue is to is every year for the tour championship on Saturday, we cook ribs for the caddies for the for the tour caddies nice. that don't that don't get a lot of you know love throughout the year. Um, you know we think that they've made it to the tour championship, and it's something that we can do. It's a small thing, but it's something that we can do from the club to them saying, hey, we recognize what you do. Here's a nice lunch that we've cooked, that we've personally cooked. It's not catered. It's not, you know, so right. that, that tradition has been ongoing for, this will be our fourth year coming up this year. So, um, plus it gives me the excuse to cook barbecue at work during the tour championship. So, it's a great <laughs> thing. Um, and then the pickles is, uh, yeah, exactly. And the pickles is just something that my uh, dad has been doing for years, and I've learned how to do it. And it's kind of one of those things, you know, once you give them out to a few folks, people start calling. And and so that's something yeah. I'm going to have to figure out um, in terms of, you know, selling them and how you do that. Right. And, um, so that that's coming down the, down the pike maybe some a little bit later in life. But right now they're not available, you know, for retail sale or anything like that. It's just kind of like a, you know, friends and family thing. Ah, well, when you're ready to get those things marketed, you let me know because we'll put up a uh, logo link on our site to make sure that we help uh, uh, you know, spread the word for dill okay. pickles. I'm a dill pickle nut. All right. Well, good. Well, Chad, good. thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday morning to be here. You're a lot of fun to talk to. I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. I'd, I'd love to continue to get your thoughts not only about what goes on at Eastlake, but maybe some thoughts and insights about what's going on around tour. It's, uh, yeah, it's been I'd be a lot happy to do that. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Chad. All the best right, to you, and say hello to Ralph for us as well, and we'll catch up soon. Will do. Have a great day. You too, Chad. Thanks. Chad Parker, head head of uh, golf, uh, golf director, I should say, out at Eastlake uh, Golf Club here in Atlanta, the site of the Tour Championship. Look forward to a barbecue. Fantastic. Going to have to check him out at the Atlanta Barbecue Festival this year. We've got our next guest, Bob Estes. Hanging on the line, going to get to him uh, right after this quick station identification. You're listening to On the Tee with Chris Mascaro on the Armed Forces Radio Network. Now joining me is PGA Tour Pro Bob Estes. Let me give you a little background on Bob. He's from Graham, Texas. Played his college golf at the University of Texas from 1984 to 1988. He won the 1988 Haskins Award, which is presented every year to the most outstanding collegiate golfer in the nation. He's a four-time winner out on the PGA Tour. He won the 1994 Texas Open, the 2001 Invensys Classic in Las Vegas, the 2001 FedEx St. Jude Classic over in Memphis, and the 2002 Kemper Open. 
He had top 10 finish last year at the OHL Classic in Riviera Maya, Mexico. He also serves as the host for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Tom Landry Memorial Golf Tournament in Augusta, Texas. And uh, I'm excited to have him as part of Next on the Tee this morning. Bob, how are you today? Good. How are you, Chris? I'm fantastic. Thank you. Now, Bob, I don't know if you know, but I also host a football show called Thursday Night Tailgate here on the Armed Forces Radio Network. I'm a huge Steelers fan. Unfortunately, I read you're a Cowboys fan, so it could get a little challenging for us, you know, here in the next few minutes. But I did have Dan Reeves on the show with me Thursday night, so maybe that can help bridge the gap a little bit. Uh, Maybe so. Yeah, I definitely grew up as a Cowboys fan. (laughs) Actually, I grew up in Abilene, Texas. I was born in in Graham and lived there for the first three years of my life. I think I was three, maybe um, just turned four when my family moved to Abilene, Texas, when my dad was a – a football, basketball, and golf coach at McMurray University. Nice. So, Bob, I, I got to say, I was reading over your profile on uh, PGATour.com, and I found it very interesting. It says you first played golf at the age of four. Who got you? Who got a golf club in your hand at, at four years old? My dad got me started. <clears throat> um, he didn't play too much growing up. I don't think he started playing until he was in college. But, um, yeah, I was playing all the sports, um, football, basketball, baseball, running a little bit of track. And I did play basketball um, um, through high school as well. Right. But, uh, but yeah, golf was going to be the, the sport for me. Yeah, so you mentioned basketball, and I read that you played basketball in high school. How did, how did golf win out over basketball? Um, well, I mean, I, I – I, basically was spending about six months in the gym and six months on the golf course with a little bit of overlap uh, through my junior high and high school years. But um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I was a pretty good basketball player, but, um, you know, as time went on and I continued to get better and better at golf and won the, the state high school championship uh, my junior year, um, it was pretty obvious. And, it, well, and I knew since I was 10 or 11 years old that um, golf is what I wanted to do, and I wanted to play on the PGA Tour. But, um, yeah, yeah I, I, I had a, a good amount of success and just kept, um, you know, pushing myself and to um, eventually, yeah, make it to the PGA Tour. Yeah, I mean, I read that piece where it said by age 12 you had already set your sights on playing out on the PGA Tour. So, you know, Good for you for having the laser focus at 12 to, to be a tour player. How did that come about? Was it, was it a love for the game or, you know, 12 years old, and we, and we all see, right, when we're growing up, oh, I want to be a baseball player, I'm going to be a football player, you know, et cetera. You said golf at 12. I, you know, what, what clicked at 12 years old for you? Well, it might have even been before that. But, yeah, I mean, I started playing when I was four. I was playing tournaments by the time I was five or six. I was watching the PGA Tour on television, you know, just like so many other people were, and just just loved it. And I just knew that's what I wanted to do from an early age. I read that you once worked with Charles Cootie in the bag room at uh, Fairway Oaks Golf Club. What was the experience, you know, A, meeting Mr. Cootie and then uh, working with him? Um, it was a great experience. Um, yeah, picking up range balls and working in the bag room, taught me that I definitely didn't want to have a real job for a living. I wanted to play golf. So I can't remember how, <laughs> how many um, months that I, I worked there at Fairway Oaks. Um, what that did, too, is it gave me um, privileges to play that golf course. 
I grew up on a municipal course, and then um, we joined Abilene Country Club when I was 14. And right around that time, I think, is when um, um, Fairway Oaks came to be uh, there in Abilene, and it was uh, just a, a bigger, stronger course. I mean, we even had the a PGA Tour event there for a few years and the Champions Tour as well. Right. But, uh, yeah, it was a great place to to um, actually raise the, the level of your game. Mr. Cootie won the 1971 Masters, had several top ten finishes in the majors. Did you ever sit down with him and pick his brain about what it takes not only to compete on the tour, but to especially compete in the majors? Um, well, what was great is, you know, I was able to, to play golf with him as well. We had an amazing situation in Abilene because we had so many really good junior golfers. Um, and Charles Cootie's son, Kyle, was one of those. Um, so I remember there were many times when, whether it was myself and Kyle and another teammate would get to go play with um, Charles. And, yeah, it was you know, I, I, it's kind of, that was so long ago, it's kind of hard to remember what all we talked about. But, but just having a, not just a, a tour player, but a major championship winner right. um, there in our hometown and able to, um, yeah, just, just play golf and see how he went about things and um, see how we compared, how our games, you know, compared to his. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was really good motivation, too, Um you know, thinking that we could do the same thing if we worked hard enough. You won your first event in 1994 at the Texas Open. So essentially in front of your home fans, you know, did you get a lot of support that week? And how exhilarating a feeling was it to be able to win, you know, in your home state? Yeah, that's the one that's closest to where I live now in Austin. And, um, yeah, I, uh, you know, we, you, sometimes you, you may have heard about the, the Texas Slam, you know, all four tournaments here in Texas. And so I've only right. won the one in San Antonio, but um, that was a pretty special win. Yeah, not just because it was my first win, but because it was here in Texas. So um, I had lots of friends and family um, down there following me. And um, being a, a Texas Longhorn, um, there's always plenty of Longhorns in the gallery at all these tournaments in Texas as well. So, yeah, it was really special. Right. Um, talk about the Masters a little bit. You played in that tournament a number of times. You finished tied for fourth with Steve Pate in 1999. Augusta National is my favorite place on the planet. Talk about what it was like the first time, you know, you got the invitation and the opportunity to play there, and then what it was like to be a contender in the final round. Yeah, I'm not even for sure exactly which year was my first year. It might have been... It might have actually been the year that I did win the Texas Open, but I think I, I may have qualified from um, the previous year. Yeah, I think that's right, because uh, my finish at the PGA Championship um, at Inverness, where I tied for six. I think that's how I earned my first Masters yeah. invite. But, but, yeah, so that was, that was really exciting. And I, one of the things that I remember in particular was the first time I went there, um, you know, of course, driving up and down Magnolia Lane was, was very impressive, but – I remember walking out of the pro shop, you know, after you know, checking in the locker room and all of that, walked out the pro shop, and from there, you know, you're looking almost directly towards the 12th green in Ray's Creek. But it was so open. Obviously, there's lots of huge pine trees and other trees, I guess, on the golf course, but right. it was so open you could see almost to the 
other end of the golf course. They they planted a lot of other trees um, since then that you know kind of blocked the view somewhat. But um, it was just it's just an amazing piece of property. Mm-hmm. Was there was there a moment during that Masters, you know, either on Saturday night or Sunday morning, when you thought to yourself, you know what, I got a chance to win the Masters here? Yeah, I can't remember how far back I was going into the last round, but I, I do remember how relaxed I was because my short game was so good. It's always been the strongest part of my game, but I got right. a lot of great, great short game practice in in the days um, you know, leading up to the beginning of the tournament. Um, I remember I was so relaxed. I was sleeping so well at night. Uh, we, we had a, a house that we rented, and I had the upstairs bedroom area all to myself and uh, so I was, I was getting plenty of sleep so it wasn't like I was real anxious but um yeah it was it was um it was pretty cool to to be in contention and actually I played well in that back nine also well I guess as it turns out um I think um any I, I think when I made the turn it was teeing off on number 10 I believe I was um, minus five, and I think I think anybody who was in contention, um, I think, was right around that same score. So, I guess you could say, in essence, I was tied to the lead with nine holes to go, and I made eight pars in the bogey um, on that last nine holes, and I was still playing really well. And I I think that I either lift out or ran it over the edge like seven of those nine holes. So um, I was still playing well, and yeah, could have could have won it, but the ball just didn't want to go in the hole in that back nine. Yeah, so you, you mentioned you know you, you slept well, you know you you weren't anxious. How how do you how do you not do that? I mean, you're you're in a major, you're in a, you're contending, you're about to go into a final round where you could win a major. You know, a lot of folks that's where it, it sort of falls apart. You know, Bobby Jones talks about you know the the game is played you know between the six inches between your ears. Jack Nicholas talks about how you know most of the players you know eliminate themselves you know when you get to a major because they don't think they're capable of doing it. How are you able to relax yourself and stay in the moment and stay focused and not get all uptight? Well, I think a lot of um, anxiety is from not feeling like you're prepared. And I was, you know, hitting it well enough. And I, I just told you how, how good my short game was. Right. I, you know, I felt like I could get it up and down from anywhere. Um, so I think that was the, the main thing. Um, I just had... Um, you know, I've been playing well. I've had some good success on tour, um, you know, prior to getting that first invite to the Masters, obviously. Uh, well, this, this was a number of years later. I'm sorry, I backed up on you to a prior year. Um, that was 1999, I guess, when I right. had a, a good chance to win the Masters. So, yeah, I had plenty of success right. on tour and at other majors where I've played well, like that 93 PGA, the Paul Azinger one. And so, yeah, I was just I was just confident with, with what I was doing. I loved the golf course. and. I mean, if you can't enjoy um, being at Augusta National and playing the Masters on Sunday, then um, you've got problems. <laughs> right. <laughs> later, later that season, later in 1999, you finished tied for sixth in the PGA tournament that, that uh, you finished with uh, Kyle Montgomery. You guys tied behind Tiger Woods. That was the year he and Sergio Garcia sort of went at it. But you, it was at Medina. You played well. You, had, you shot 69 in the final round, which was the best round amongst all of the leaders. Talk about that experience and, uh, and how you were able to get around in 69 while everyone else was 72, 73, 74. 
Oh, I didn't even remember that um, I shot the low round of the, the guys that were up near the lead. So I, yeah, how about that? I've been out, I've been out there for a long time, so it's hard to remember everything. But um, sure. no, what I what I actually remember, uh, I mean, obviously I I finished sixth. I finished sixth at the PGA Championship three times, and so um, you know that was my my best finish in in that particular major. But um, right. I bogeyed two of the last three holes coming down the stretch. I had a chance to make the Ryder Cup team. I knew I was close. I wasn't really thinking about the Ryder Cup team. I was just trying to finish as high as I could, you know, in, right. in that particular championship. I can't remember how many shots back I, I finished the Tiger, but I don't think that I had uh, too much of a chance to win. I think I was too far back, you know, kind of on that back nine on right. Sunday. but. I bogeyed two of the last three holes to finish 11th on the, the Ryder Cup points list. If I would have just made one bogey in those last three holes, I would have made the team automatically. But um, Ben Crenshaw, who was the captain um, that year, was kind of in an awkward position. Um, or maybe not, but, you know, we, we both obviously with the University of Texas. But if Ben would have picked me, um, from what I heard, I would have been the first rookie – a Ryder Cup rookie to ever have been a selection. I think anybody up to that point, and even a few years beyond that, um, had Ryder Cup experience. So it would have put, yeah. a, put a lot of pressure on him, too, to pick me in that situation. And so I, I completely understood, because um, supposedly the Ryder Cup is a, you know, a whole different animal. But um, I would have enjoyed the challenge, but I completely understood. That's one of the disappointments in, in your career, Bob, that you're not, not getting the opportunity to play in the Ryder Cup? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we have the President's Cup as well, but the Ryder Cup right. has always been the one that um, held the most prestige. So, so yeah, that was right. disappointing. I mean, I, I felt like I still was going to have many opportunities to, to make the team after that. And I did play um, really well in that um, time around 2000 and um, one 2002 where I won yeah. three times I think in 13 months right. but um, obviously we had 9-11 as well um, right around that time and that kind of threw off right. the, the Ryder Cup President's Cup schedule as well so right. uh, maybe I would have had a, a better chance to make the Ryder Cup I can't remember how all that played yep. out schedule wise but um, I also finished 12th um, yeah, a couple years later on the, the President's Cup points list, but when Nicholas was the, well, he, I guess he's been the captain multiple times, but um, also right. did not get selected then, but my game was kind of in decline, even though I had um, had played really well to put myself in that position, but at that point in time, I wasn't playing as well. Yeah. Now, you mentioned 2001, right? You, you won twice that year, right? Three times within uh, a 13-month span. You finished ninth on the money list that year. Is that the most satisfying season, you know, from what you've gotten so far out on tour? Um, I think so. Yeah, anytime you, you win once, it's, it's special. I mean, so many guys have played the tour for many years and never won out there. So um, it's hard enough to win once. So to win, you know, twice right. in one year, you know, that kind of says something. And I had made some changes. Um, I had actually changed my grip at Colonial in May of 2001. Um, even though I'd had success prior to that, I felt like I just wasn't able to get over the hump and get to that next level. 
and I it experimented over the years with a ten finger grip, and so finally right. I just kind of made the decision to um, to commit to that, and and I did and I did that like I said in May 2001. I won a month later in Memphis, June, and then again right. in October I think it was, um, yeah in Vegas, and. And won the fall finish as well back when we had that going on. So I, I won the, a big bonus for winning the fall finish through the Tour Championship. And um, But then I tried to even improve on that in 2002, 2003, and I was actually – what I had done with my equipment and my grip size to make me play better, I started to try to actually make my golf swing better to go along with that, and I started going in the wrong direction. So by the time I kind of figured out that that wasn't quite right, I had um, played some pretty poor golf and was, yeah, heading south instead of north. Well, and now, right, as mentioned in the intro, you, you had a top 10 finish last fall, uh, you know, uh, in uh, Riviera, Meyer, Mexico. Where's your game at now? Oh, I guess we didn't get a chance to talk about that. No, that, that's the last tournament that I played. I I started struggling a little bit with my left shoulder uh, end of August, early September, right around the time of the, the playoffs. Um, but I didn't know what it was. But it, it, it got a little bit worse through September, October, um, November. I think it was the second to third week of November when we played the event in Mexico. Um, I skipped a couple of events because I knew I wasn't prepared this past fall because my shoulder was getting worse. And so it, it makes it difficult to even want to go practice when, you know, you have an injury like that. But as it turns out, yeah. um, I had an MRI done the Tuesday after the tournament in Mexico, and um, I guess it, it showed that I had an impingement. So that's what was going on. So it's much better than it was back in November, but I'm still going through different kinds of therapy. Um, I have a really good prolotherapy doctor here in Austin. I think he either is or was the head of the association here in the state of Texas. So I've, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to avoid surgeries that I'm trying to do, even if I miss the entire rest of the, the season or the year. Um, so I have made progress, but it's still not to the point yet where I can make a full swing. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. So, Thanks. Bob, just one, one or two more before we let you go. I'm, I'm curious, uh, coming off of Pinehurst and the U.S. Open last week, and, you know, you saw how the course is, you know, gone to more centerline watering, the natural vegetation uh, that's out there in place of the rough. What do you think about, you know, that layout, what it did for Pinehurst, and as it seems to be maybe that's going to get a little traction for, you know, golf courses just in general? Well, I've been hoping so for a long time. Um, Is that right? The Open Championship. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. No, I'm, I grew up in West Texas. I grew up playing on hard pan. I grew up playing on um, really firm, fast, dried-out golf courses just because we don't get too much rain out there during the, the summertime and, and the fall. So, um, and, and the, the Open Championship, the British Open as we call it, um, was, was always the, the championship that most intrigued me growing up. Um, so I love that browned out look, you know, it was closer to what I grew up playing, um, on a lot of the courses in West Texas. And so I've just, um, I, it's, it's always more fun to, 
to run the ball along the ground. I mean, obviously we, you know, you're still hitting it up in the air, but it's it, it's just not <laughs> right, fun right. to play a it's not fun to play a wet, soft, lush golf course. Golf is so much more fun when the ground is firm and you've got you know different options on how to play certain shots. Yeah, very nice. Uh, I'll be intrigued to see if this really takes off. I keep hearing some whispers that this is, you know, where golf is going to go, just not only because, you know, it's it's different, but more it, it saves golf courses so much money and time, you know, based on, you know, the water bills, you know, having to mow, you know, and take care of, you know, the roughs and that sort of thing. It's going to be interesting to see if this actually becomes a movement uh, in golf course management, if you will, you know, at least in this country. Yeah, Bob, I, we, I, I got to – Oh, go ahead. Okay. No, no, go, please. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I think there's going to be a, a real battle for, for quite a while over the, the look of green and the playability of brown. So, yeah, we'll see how that plays right. out. Right. Yeah, agreed. Now, I, I got to thank you, Bob. You, you had made uh, the suggestion to me when you and I first connected about having Jim Estes, who's not related, uh, on the on the on the show, and I had Jim uh, last week. Fantastic! Some of the stuff that he is doing for the military vets and and those folks that are um, you know had injuries and are trying to get into the game of golf, whether it's you know they've had you know amputations or or, par- or paralysis or any of those sorts of things. He was fantastic to talk to last week. He's doing some amazing things with you know folks that you know listening to us here on the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's uh, it's a wonder all the stuff that he's doing. Thank you for the suggest the suggestion, and I was able to have him join us so i appreciate the the finger pointing me in that direction you're welcome yeah he's doing some great work and has been for many years right so what's next for you bob um like i said i'm just trying to get the shoulder back to where it functions like a tour pro's shoulder should and trying to avoid surgery so um i have just been i've been continuing my my training um, I probably gained a little bit of weight, actually, from spending too much time on the, the couch and in the easy chair. I need to get back out on the course and, you know, get away from the, the fridge and the pantry. But, um, but no, but I, I'm really fit except for the, for the shoulder. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'll be looking forward to, to getting after it whenever I'm able to get it going again. Very good. Bob, how can our listeners follow you, whether that's on social media or online? Um, I guess the best way to follow me is on Twitter at Bob Estes PGA. Um, I'm on there um, quite a bit now because I'm not on the golf course as much. So, um, yeah, we, we, we talk a lot of golf and a lot of politics. So, Bob Estes PGA. Very good. Bob, thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your Saturday to join me. You're a great guest. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime. I'd love to, you know, get your insights, pick your brain a little bit about, you know, not, not only about, you know, the, the game of golf or what's going on on tour, maybe a, a pointer or two along the way, but uh, I, I hope you'll come back and join, it, join me again sometime. Yeah, I certainly will. Great. All right, Bob. Have a great rest of your weekend. Best of luck to you. I'm rooting for you to get this shoulder back in shape and then uh, seeing you back out on tour hopefully real soon. Okay. Thank you very much, Chris. All right. Take care, Bob. You too. Bye. Fantastic stuff. Bob Estes. Uh, and follow him online, like I said, at Bob Estes PGA. 
All right, everybody, it's time to put a bow on this one. My sincere thanks to all three of my guests this morning, Paul Rudine, Chad Parker, and Bob Estes for being outstanding guests, and to our announcer, uh, who uh, unfortunately wasn't with us this morning, but uh, always usually does a great job of getting the show kicked off. That's Joe Lajanutha. Uh, he does an outstanding job not only on this show, but on our show Thursday night tailgate. It's our sister show. Hopefully you'll check us out there as well. That show also airs here on Blog Talk Radio and on the Armed Forces Radio Network. My co-host Bob Lazari and like I mentioned, Joe Lajanusa. Every week on Thursday night tailgate, we are talking to uh, members of the NFL Alumni Association, current players, coaches, people also within uh, players also over in the uh, in the CFL. So uh, we're on live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, so please check us out there. You can find us online for both of these shows. Next on the T is is uh, nextonthetea.net. Thursday Night Tailgate is just that, thursdaynighttailgate.com. You can stream or download any of our archive episodes and keep up to date with who future guests are going to be for either one of our shows by checking us out online. That's important to us. Give us, give us a like on Facebook, too. Give us a comment. Let us know what you think about either show. You can find us. Both shows have a page on Facebook as well. And until next week, my friends, hit them straight. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. And participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.